Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we are grateful to gather in your presence and to rest in the knowledge that where two or three are gathered in your name, there your Son, Jesus Christ, has promised to be. Jesus, we're glad you're here. We're glad to gather in your presence as your uh, authoritative assembly and representatives here on earth, not because of any works of righteousness that we've done, but because of your grace and because of your spirit, whom you've sent into our hearts and into our assembly today. And so, Father, I pray that you would gather us in every way. Not just physically. We're here physically, but we need to gather our hearts and give attention to what you've said in your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would remove the anxieties the distractions, the burdens, the cares and concerns, the physical weakness, and that you would allow us just for the next few moments to focus on your son and feast on who you are and be fed by the truth of your word. Lord, we also want to remember in prayer uh, Pastor Guy and Mary Ann, as they conclude their time ministering in Israel and make their way back home shortly uh, uh, tomorrow morning, I, I think. And, and we ask that you'd give them safety, Father, as they come home and keep them strong and well, and that you would cause the, uh, the fruit that they were able to see to grow and, and, uh, and remain. Father, we pray as well for... Uh, the family of John Johnson, who we said goodbye to yesterday. And I ask that you would especially be with his kids and that you would comfort Dalen and Delilah and Douglas and uphold them with your righteous right hand and help them to know that you are present with them as the God of all comfort in this moment. Father, we pray for wisdom and provision for our church family as we prepare to make a big decision uh, about how we're going to allocate our resources over the next year. Not because money is the most important thing, but because it is a revealer of where our heart is and actually has the power to direct our focus and our affections. And so we acknowledge our need of you even in that. 
Father, please allow us to see who you are and what you want us to see of you in this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of a thing is the Bible? Sure, if you look up the word Bible in the Oxford Dictionary, you'll find a definition. It's the Christian scriptures consisting of the Old and New Testaments. But what does that mean? How should we think about this book? I've heard people say, for example, that the Bible is like a manual for living. How many of you have heard that? Uh, if you want to know how to live, you've got to read the instructions, right? And uh, we point to our Bible as the manual for how to live life. Others, it seems to me, read the Bible sort of like they might read a newspaper, but instead of a newspaper describing past events, it's a newspaper that you read to know what's going to happen in the future. Non-Christians, people who don't believe that the Bible has any spiritual significance, have a measure of respect for the Bible. They might see it as a small library filled with historically significant documents that help to explain the background of Judeo-Christian religion and, and, and perhaps explain a little bit of how it's affected our world today. I've heard many Christians speak of the Bible as a love letter from God to you. Uh, certainly it comes from God. And it's very personal, and it tells us that God's mighty acts are motivated by his love for his people. Each of these ways of thinking emphasizes certain truths, certain realities about the Bible. It's like a beautiful gemstone with a lot of facets, and if you turn it this way, you can see this facet. If you turn it another way, you can see a different facet, and so there's a measure of truth in all of them. But primarily, what is the Bible? Primarily, the Bible is God's gracious written revelation of a unique person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not first and foremost about how you should live. It's about who Jesus is. It's not first and foremost about the history of a people. It's about who Jesus is. It's not first and foremost about what will happen in the future. It's about a person who is in control of the future. It's not even primarily about the loving, the, the, the loving relationship between God and his people. It's about, it's about a person who brings that relationship about. It's about Jesus. The Bible is a revelation of the Son of God. This is more or less the point that Jesus emphasized to his followers in Luke chapter 24, immediately after his resurrection. He walks along with them toward Emmaus, and he, uh, we're told in, in, in Luke 24 that beginning with, all, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later in that same chapter, he gathers with his disciples and and he says, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that's all of the Old Testament scriptures that they had at the time, all of them are, must be fulfilled. And then he says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, Jesus himself made the radical claim that every part of the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that he himself was able to read, was in fact a revelation of him. Regarding the New Testament, this is even more explicitly the case. He told the apostles that when he goes away, he is going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And he says this about the Spirit. He says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will bear witness about me. He will glorify me. 
because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the result of this ministry of the Spirit is the inspired 27 books of the New Testament. So my point is, what is the Bible? The Bible is the revelation of a person. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible is about him. And so it's no surprise that when an unidentified preacher begins this sermon known as the letter to the Hebrews, the first thing he tells us is that while in the past God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, in these last days he reveals himself with by uh, he he sends he speaks to us by his son. As we lead up to Christmas this year, we're meditating on a specific reality that Christmas underscores: the fact that when Jesus comes, he's born into the world, and he grows up, he begins to teach, and he reveals the reality that there is one God, but that God exists in three persons. Before Christmas, that, that was not known. Uh, that wasn't revealed until Jesus came. So if you're wondering, what's the connection to Christmas? That's the connection. Uh, it's this reality, this wonderful reality of what Jesus reveals about the character and the nature of God. And so last week we learned that God, unlike any other being in existence, is both three in one sense and one in another sense. There's one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet these three persons are distinct from one another. We also recognize that it's very easy for us in trying to comprehend the incomprehensible to speak wrongly about God. And therefore, we must remember that God is not one being with three parts, kind of like an egg. You know, an egg has three parts, right? You've got the yolk and then the white, and then around that there's a the shell. There's three parts, but all three of them combined make the egg. God's not like that. He's not a being with three parts. Nor is he one being that appears in different modes, uh, kind of like water. You know, water can exist as a solid, ice, or liquid, or a gas, steam. Uh, but God's not like that. He's not one being that kind of changes shape or changes form in, in order to meet the needs of the moment. It's, it's altogether different from that. Nor is he one God served by lesser gods, like many false teachers have claimed down through the centuries. Uh, and, and we talked about that last week and how important it is for us to understand the mystery or, or for us to acknowledge the mystery of who God is and how there's really nothing or no one like him in our world. And so today we turn our attention from God the Father to God the Son. And in order to do that, I, I would invite you to put yourself in the sandals of the first recipients of this written sermon, uh, the letter to the Hebrews. There were apparently people who, for the most part, had grown up practicing the religion of the Jews. They had worshipped the one true God. They knew the Bible. They knew the law. And at some point they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they learned that Jesus is the Son of God who had come into the world to bear the sins of many so that he can uh, redeem them and buy them back from sin. And he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again the third day. And then uh, weeks later he ascended into heaven and these people heard that message and they believed. But then life began to kind of take its toll, and it became difficult, and they were following Jesus, but that became hard. Some of them had been imprisoned. Some had their goods confiscated, their property confiscated. They, they no longer enjoyed the political protections that at that time were available to practicing Jews, and so they probably felt lonely, and they felt discouraged, and they felt tired, and they were tempted to say something like this. I believe in God. 
I still know that there's one God, but this Jesus, following Jesus of Nazareth, it's just become too hard. And they were tempted to throw in the towel, give up, and walk away. That is what the whole letter to the Hebrews is designed to address, this grave and dangerous prospect of abandoning Jesus Christ. And in this passage in particular, we're offered a very specific reason why the Hebrews, why we should not throw in the towel, why we should not give up following Jesus, why we should not affirm that God exists, but we don't want to follow Christ. And the very specific reason is this. It's because when we see Jesus... We are looking at God himself. When we see Jesus, we are looking at God himself. And so if we throw in the towel on Jesus, we're throwing in the towel on following God at all. God revealed himself through the prophets in the past, sure, but now we have Christ. He completely reveals God. And there are three reasons why we can say that this is the case. First, because of who Jesus, uh, because, uh, sorry, because Jesus is who God is. Second, because Jesus does what God does. And then thirdly, because Jesus lives where God lives. Uh, So consider with me, first of all, that Jesus is who God is. Notice how he is described in verse 2. In these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his son, his son, If you were to trace all of the occurrences in which Jesus claims to or is said to be the Son of God, you will find that this is not a figure of speech. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. More specifically, the Son of God became the human Jesus in the moment when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and he was conceived in the womb of a virgin. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But it's clear... When, for example, Jesus speaks to the Father in prayer and he mentions the relationship between the Father and the Son of God uh, as existing before the world began, that the identity of the Son of God as the Son of God has been his from before the beginning. He is eternally the Son of God. Now think about what that means. Uh, I am a son of two people. I have a mother and a father. And so in this way, we're a little bit different, right? Or we're actually a lot different <laughs> from God the Father and God the Son. Uh, there is no divine mother. So even though I, I only share part of the nature of my father because I also have a mother, but Jesus is not this way. The Son of God is eternally the Son of the Father. And so his identity is with the Father. His nature is one and the same with the Father. He is fully God as the Son of God. He is true God of true God, as the confession says. I know that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but there it is. This is why the Judeans accused him of blasphemy in John chapter 5, because in claiming to be the Son of God, he was claiming equality with God. As the Son of God, of course, it stands to reason that he would be appointed the heir of all things, as we're told in verse 2. Whatever God possesses, Jesus by rights possesses too, because he is who God is. He is the heir of all things. And this identity with God is apparent to us. It's been revealed as such. So notice verse 3. What is he called? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
How more clear can we be? All the glories of God are visible in Jesus Christ. So is God omnipotent? Is God all-powerful? Then God the Son is omnipotent, all-powerful. Is God utterly holy? Jesus is utterly holy. Is God unchanging? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is, does, does God's perfect anger burn against injustice? Jesus' anger burns against injustice. Does God show mercy to a thousand generations? Jesus shows mercy to a thousand generations. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. What's more, this idea of radiance reminds us that Jesus makes visible what is hidden in God. He is the one who shows us most perfectly, most fully, the character of God. What was hidden behind the veil of the tabernacle, what was cloaked in the thick cloud on Mount Sinai, shines out in the person of the Son of God. He is the radiance of the glories of God. Now, we're living in a world, in a culture that uh, at least to some degree, in spite of all that's going wrong in our world, most people have a measure of respect or appreciation for Jesus of Nazareth. If they know anything about Jesus, they probably think he's a good guy. Uh, uh, generally speaking, we appreciate him. Uh, just the other day, Mandy and I were leaving the hospital after visiting with somebody, and we laughed because there was this big, huge marble cornerstone in the wall of the hospital right by the entrance, and it just says, heal the sick, Jesus. <laughs> you know, like, he said this, so we're, you know, we're authorized to do what we're doing here in this hospital because of what Jesus said. I mean, people respect their idea of who Jesus is. But is it the real Jesus that we all appreciate? Uh, read through, for example, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it would take you an hour at most to get through that. There are worse ways to spend an hour. But if you do that, what you'll find from beginning to end is that Mark presents Jesus not as a peace-loving hippie who, who says cool things every once in a while. No, he is much differently presented than that. Consistently, when, Mark is, uh, when, when Jesus is presenting the Gospel of Mark, he makes these wildly bold claims about his own identity and his own authority. I mean, from the very beginning, he claims authority over demons. He claims authority over sickness. He claims authority over religion and worship. He claims authority to forgive sins. And he basically says, I'm the Lord. And if you don't like it, tough. In other words, if you take Jesus at his word, then you're immediately confronted with the fact that, as, as C.S. Lewis used to say, he is, this guy is either a, a bold-faced liar, or he is absolutely insane, he's a complete lunatic, or maybe he really is the Lord. And that's, why our, that's basically what our writer here in Hebrews is saying, too. When you see Jesus, you are looking at God. Why? Because Jesus is who God is. Secondly, Jesus does what God does. Jesus does what God does. Our passage lists three great works that only God can accomplish, each of which is performed not just by the one God who exists, but actually by the Son of God. Notice, first of all, that the work of creation is the work of Jesus, the work of creation itself. Through him also he created the world, our writer says. Actually, the specific word used is not typical. Typically, uh, if you wanted to say God created the world, you would say he created the cosmos. 
But that's not the word that's used in this passage. It's actually the word that, uh, it's the word eons. He created the eons. It's as if our writer wants to emphasize the fact that the Son of God, the eternal word, actually, he didn't just create the physical matter of the universe. He actually is writing the world's story. Like he has invented history from time immemorial. Do you remember from the opening chapters of the Bible how it is that God makes the world? What is it that God does? How does he do it? He speaks, right? Let there be light. And there was light. And what we learn in the New Testament is that this word is none other than himself, the Son of God, the eternal word, meaning God in one sense speaks the word, but in another sense God is the word. The Son of God, the eternal Word, is the one who has created all things. John says as much in the opening verses of his own gospel, the verses Skipper read a few moments ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John's point is unmistakable. The Son of God exists in a different category of being from us. I mean, we all, we all exist, right? But there's, one, there, there are more, there's more than one type of existence. There's the type of existence that you and I share with everything that we can see in this room, all the things that we'll see if we, when we walk out the door. All the things that we know of that exist have been made. But there's another type of existence, and it's the existence that only God possesses, and that is that he is unmade uncreated. And just like the one God is uncreated, John makes the point, there is nothing that has been made that was not made through him. He is unmade. He always has been. He has continually existed. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God because he does what only God does. He made the world. Not only is the work of creation the work of the Son of God, but notice also that it is he alone who holds everything together by his powerful word. He upholds the universe with the word of his power, we're told. Uh, The smartest scientists in the world have been laboring for centuries to understand what is it that holds the universe together. Have you guys seen uh, documentaries or, or read news articles about that gigantic underground particle collider in Europe, uh, it's kind of cool. You know, they do these science experiments and they try to break apart atoms and figure out what are the little particles and uh, forces of energy that hold existence together. And every year they learn more. But guess what, folks? They are never, they might see the complexity that's there, but they are never going to understand the complexity that's there or what holds that complexity together unless God reveals it. Because it's not a scientific question, it's a metaphysical question. I mean, once you get down to the smallest, most indivisible particle in existence, you still are left with the question, well, why does that particle exist? Why does that force of energy exist? And the answer is given to us right in these verses. It is because the Son of God holds that together by the word of his power. He it is who holds the universe together. That word upholds, it's a simple word. It just means to bear or carry. He carries the universe. He holds it up. The Son of God does that. 
every galaxy, billions of light years away, these images that we've seen from the James Webb telescope that are so breathtakingly wonderful, and, and they, dis, they depict these stars and balls of gas and, 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 and these massive things that, that exist so far away from us, all of that, the Son of God, at any given moment, he is holding that together. Just ponder that for five seconds. I mean, it, it, it's... It's indescribably wonderful. This wonderful person, a person who is himself uncreated, who spoke into existence all that is, who holds it all together by the word of his power, does what only God can do. Not only is the work of creation the work of the Son of God, not only does he hold it all together even now, but he actually works to forgive sinners. I mean, while he's doing all these other things, he works to forgive sinners. After making purification for sins, he sat down, we're told. If you continue to read this majestic discourse, you'll find the purifying work of Jesus kind of takes front and center stage at numerous times throughout the book. Uh, Jesus is kind of like that sacrificial lamb that's laid upon the altar. He's also depicted as the great high priest who offers that sacrifice to God the Father as a satisfying sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. But it's important that we point out that there is only one person who has the authority to purify that which is not actually pure, to actually forgive that which we cannot take back. Uh, only God can do this, and there's a very simple reason why. It's because only God has ultimately been sinned against. Our sin is ultimately against only one person, and that's God. And so, therefore, ultimately, forgiveness and purification can only come from that one person. Uh, think of it this way. How absurd would it be if you were standing at a bus stop, here you are, you're waiting for your bus, and then next to you, this married couple or dating couple, obviously a couple, they come up, and they're standing at the bus stop, they're waiting for a different bus, and you're standing there, you're waiting patiently, you're trying to mind your own business, and then you hear this man begin to berate his girlfriend or his wife, and he's just reading her the riot act, and he's, he's saying things that you wouldn't want to repeat, and just right, right there in front of you, and you're just trying to look at your shoes and, and uh, make the most of, a, of an awkward situation, you know, and just get through it. And then finally he runs out of steam, and she's standing there, and she's just silent, she's crying, obviously hurt by what he's done. And you know, I mean, this guy's just done her wrong. No matter what she did, that shouldn't have been done that way. And then imagine just as your bus is about to arrive and you're going to get on the bus and you're never going to see those folks again because they're waiting for a different bus. The bus pulls up and you turn to the man and you say, you know, man, I don't know your name and I don't know why you did what you did, but I want you to know it was wrong but I forgive you. And then you get on the bus and then you drive away. I mean, would that make any sense at all? No, right? Why? Because that guy didn't do anything to you. He didn't sin against you. Who did he sin against? He sinned against his wife or his girlfriend, whoever it was. You can't forgive somebody's sin against somebody else. That doesn't make sense. And so when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
when it comes to our sin against God, it, doesn't, it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to forgive sin, to purify sin, if he were not himself God. He alone can do it because all the angry and the lustful thoughts and the corrupt acts and the harmful words piled up over the course of the centuries in offense against the righteousness and justice of God would have nothing to do with Jesus if he weren't himself God. But he is God. And he can do what only God can do. And so when we see Jesus, we're looking at God himself. So when he stands in his rented home in Capernaum and four men pull the tiles off the roof of the house and they let down their friend on a bed, he's paralyzed. And Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody standing there is like, what? How can he say that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet Jesus has that authority to do so. And he wants us to know it. Uh, he is God. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at God himself because Jesus is who God is and because Jesus does what only God can do. In the third place, notice with me that Jesus lives where God lives. Jesus lives where God lives. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what we're told in verse 3. Again, this is a deep, deeply meaningful phrase. It just takes about just, just the whole rest of the letter to unpack. But it's very important that we remember this phrase. When the Son of God became a man, when he became Jesus of Nazareth, when he took upon himself a human nature, part of what that means is that he became embodied. He took on the nature of humanity, and part of being a human means you have a body. God is spirit. He exists beyond the limitations of the physical, but human beings, by nature, we have a body. We have a physical body. That's how God made us. And the Son of God took on that nature at the moment of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. According to the New Testament, this God-man lived in the body in Galilee for 30-some-odd years, and then he was killed in Jerusalem, and he was buried in a nearby tomb, and then he was raised from the dead in the body on the third day. And, and, and he was no longer limited by death. I mean, still a body, but not a body that's plagued by the weakness of our body. It was a glorified body. And he ministered to his followers for 40 days, and then his body was lifted up into the heavens where he took his place at the right hand of the Father. This is one of those realities that we get confused about because as we'll come to understand next week when we talk about the, uh, God the Holy Spirit, uh, it's appropriate for us to think of Jesus as being present with us in our hearts or, or Jesus being present with the church where the church is gathered here, Jesus is with us. And when we celebrate the Lord's table, we know that Jesus is here with us. Celebrate, he's, he's having fellowship with us. That's why we call it communion. But it is not Jesus bodily present with us. It's not his body. It is the spirit of Jesus who is here with us, the spirit of Christ who proceeds from both the Father and the Son so that we might commune with God in the here and now. But understand that Jesus bodily, his body is in just one place, just like anybody who has a body. And that place just happens to be at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is that? Well, Jesus is enthroned in the heavenly courtroom, in the heavenly 
court. He dwells in the heavenly sanctuary, a place where we can barely begin to imagine based on the pattern given to us in the tabernacle and the temple, based on the visions of the prophets of the Old Testament, this otherworldly place where God dwells, this wonderful place, a place in which Isaiah the prophet uh, pronounced woe upon himself because of his uncleanness. Like he was there and he realized, I am not worthy to be here. You see now why we need to be purified because only that which is pure can enter the throne room of God where Jesus resides. Okay, well, what does it mean to say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's seated there? What, what significance is attached to that? Well, there are two entailments. First, at God's right hand, Jesus reigns with the Father. He is the King. Yes, it's true that the the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, but Jesus is the King over all things. He just hasn't claimed uh, full, effective victory over all things. He possesses authority over all things, but Satan and his armies still act as though he has not. Uh, Years ago, when I was in seminary, I heard New Testament scholar D.A. Carson illustrate it this way. He said, think about the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. Uh, D-Day is the day, of course, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and they set up a beachhead uh, on the, the European continent. And then from there, they launched out into an offensive that would eventually result in victory over Nazi Germany. Uh, that's D-Day. And then VE Day, what's that? That's the day in which they were able to declare complete victory in Europe. VE, victory in Europe. Okay, so we could ask the question, when did the Allied forces during World War II win the war? When did they win? Well, D-Day is the day when it became irreversible and obvious that they were going to win, right? Like, there was no stopping the Allied forces once they succeeded on D-Day. The victory had all but been secured at that point, but here's the problem. There was, no, there was no way that Hitler was going to win, but he wasn't willing to act as though he had lost yet. And so you had a lot of things that needed to take place after D-Day. You had the Battle of the Bulge and, and uh, you know, all of these uh, battles. A lot of people died in those battles, and so the, the victory was secure, but it had to be claimed still. So the Allied forces were kind of in this in-between stage between D-Day and VE Day. The victory was secure, it was certain, but it had to be claimed. And it's a little bit of like where we're living today, between D-Day and VE Day. The, The enemy has been defeated, but he hasn't yet acknowledged defeat. The cross destroyed the works of the devil, but the devil is still running around doing the things that he wants to do until the day when Christ returns. The victory has been bought, it's been secure, it's been paid for, but it hasn't yet fully been claimed. This is why we celebrate Advent, right? Because we celebrate the fact that Christ has come, that's his first Advent, but we look forward to the day when he'll come again, his second Advent. This is why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We don't sing that he's come, We, we sing, come, please, we pray for that. So what does that mean? It means that he's currently the king and that the thousands of local churches around the world are like little embassies of his kingdom, but we're also living in this reality that one day he will return, and when he does, all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of the Lord. Second entailment. 
in his place beside the Father, not only does he reign with God, he intercedes on behalf of the saints. He intercedes on behalf of his saints. He speaks for us. John said, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is what we celebrate when we sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Jesus lives where God lives, and from that vantage point, he takes up our cause and he prays for us. So uh, this, if I could just back up for a second, everything that we've just talked about is why theologians, you'll often hear say uh, about Christ, that he fills three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And what I mean is, as prophet, Jesus perfectly reveals to us God. As priest, he represents us before God. And as king, he rules us as God. Jesus, when you look at him, you are looking at God himself. How do I know? Because he is who God is, because he does what God does, because he lives where God lives. And folks, if that's true this morning, it has massive significance for the way we live today. Let me just mention two impacts on us today. First of all, if it's true that Jesus completely shows us the perfections of all that God is, then friends, our task, our main task, is to look at him, not anything else. Our main task is to look at Jesus, not at anything else. Oh, how we need to learn this. I mean, why do we grasp so desperately for new revelation? Why are we so anxious for fuzzy feelings and psychological sensations about everything that is happening in the world? Why do we need another show or movie depicting what Jesus might have been like when we have this book revealing what he actually is like? Why do we trip head over heels when somebody says they died and went to heaven and came back or, or went to hell and came back? We don't need that. Why do we try so hard to figure out the times and the seasons and impress all of our wacky religious friends with our supposed insights about what the newspaper headline is revealing about when's, what's going to happen next in the eschatological timeline? Why do we focus so much on these things? We don't need that stuff. Is that where our focus is supposed to lie? No, our focus is supposed to be on Christ. It's supposed to be on a person, friends. Isn't Jesus enough? Why do we need to hear somebody tell us uh, what, what kind of you know, wings all the angels had when they visited heaven and then came back to life? We don't need that. We need to look at Christ. I got one amen on that. I'll receive it. You know, the prophet Isaiah called this out long ago. He was living in a world in a, among a people who had the same types of longings that we do. And he called it out. He said, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? But the people didn't want to hear from God because God didn't always tell them what they wanted to hear. Or sometimes he said, you know what, I've told you enough, and you're, you're going to have to trust me with what I've given you to know. We don't want to hear that. We don't like that. 
And folks, if that didn't make sense in Isaiah's day, if he called them out for that, how much more so today? You want to know all this stuff, but be honest. The reason you want to know stuff that you are not supposed to know because God didn't tell you is because you like to feel like you're in control, right? But you don't need it. You, you remember what Paul said? He said he took all his religion and all of his credentials and all of who he was, and he says, I counted all those things as trash, rubbish, and I threw it over to the side because I wanted one thing. I wanted to know Christ. I wanted to know Jesus. Our task is very simple. If when we see Jesus, we are looking at God himself, then our task is to know Jesus, period. All the other stuff is going to fall into place when we stay focused on that one singular pursuit. Second impact, if it's true that when we see Jesus, we're looking at God himself, then we must never, never stop following him. We must never throw in the towel. We must never say, I'm done. I'm going to pursue the pleasures of this life. I just can't do this anymore. We must never do that. The Hebrews were in danger of saying that. They were being persecuted. They were tired. They felt alone. They were dealing with a lot more difficult circumstances than, uh, than, than many of us are. And they were tempted to say, I can't follow Jesus anymore. I want to give up and I want to turn back. And what this means is, if it's true that Jesus, when we look at him, he shows us who God is, then we must never turn back from following him. Our writer asks them again and again throughout the book, how can you turn back? Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king. He reveals God's character. He represents you to the Father. He reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high. So don't give up. He says, consider Jesus. When was the last time you considered Jesus? Like you just sat down and, and with an open Bible or with just a heart open before the Lord, you just sat there and you considered Jesus. Like you just thought about him. Maybe you're here this morning and your faith is hanging by a thread and you're, you're this close to saying, I'm done. You're looking at the hypocrisy of others. You're looking at how tired you are in serving the Lord. You're looking at how many times it feels like you aren't making a difference. You're looking at the trials you're facing. You're looking at the pleasures of the world. You're looking at the wicked as they prosper. You're looking at something God forbids but you really want. You're looking at the sin that you feel like you can't gain any victory over, but here's the, the one thing that you're not doing is, folks, you're not looking at Christ. And that's what we need to get back to. We need to get away from looking at all these other things and we need to look at Jesus. Why? Because when you look at Christ, you're looking at God himself. He is the Son of God. Would you pray with me?